Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Valerie Bowling. I'm pleased to share a talk from the Patients as Partners in Clinical Trials Europe 2019 event featuring Dr. Loda DeWolf of Servier, who presented on his strategic efforts to include the patient voice at Servier. This session is called Connecting Employee-Centric Culture to Patient-Centric Culture. The Patients as Partners Europe 2020 conference takes place January 27th to the 28th in London. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, everybody. I hope you're all well. So my name is Lode DeWolf. It's great to be back here. I have skipped last year and I can never catch up with that, but I can stop missing future ones, I hope. Um, I'm here to talk to you a little bit about something that I've learned in the last few years, which is at a less operational level than the examples we've had before. That said, the sharing of the examples we've had are probably, in my opinion, the most important thing. It's, it's, it's together with the people we meet, it's what inspires us. Because the reality still is, and I do agree the British Medical Journal should get lots of support from everybody. It needs to become as much a requirement to work with patients on your study as it is to get statistical input, which also needs to happen early, by the way. Um, but the truth is that many of these examples are nowhere to be found. Only the people that are involved know about them. And that's a huge, huge shame. And it's a shame for us too, because inside our company we're asked to give examples. And so that's why we're here, to learn and to share. And so for me, the two words that come out today are togetherness and sharing. Um, and I hope we will continue a lot more of that. I was asked to go and take it up to a, a more um, less practical, more strategic level. And I, 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 have, I, I will pick on some of the things that have come. And it starts with a headache. It's the headache of centricity. I, I loved the, the, the cartoon with the with the big birdcage. I need to get that reference, by the way. Um, one of the first things, uh, by the way, I worked for 10 years at UCB, um, and I was uh, the first chief patient officer in industry, so it's, it's real beard, real white hair. Anyway, but one of the first things that patients told us is we don't like the word patient centricity. In fact, there is a website called um, Participative Medicine, and on that, there's a blog called Language Matters. And in one of the blogs is the 10 words patients hate most. Now, it's totally unscientific, biased, but words like patient journey, patient engagement, all of the things that we use every day are not really welcome by a lot of patients. And why is that? Because the words we use like here, and it depends whether you do the American or the English spelling, um, they're, all, they're all complicated, they're all very long, long, and what they most are is pharma language. They're not patient language, it's definitely not young patient language. I have the privilege every weekend, at least once a week, to go and visit my mom in an elderly home. There's about, oh, between 50 and 100 elderly people there, average age is 80, no, average age is 87. So my mums are among the younger ones. Um, and that's, that's, that's a real patient community. And they don't talk these words. And so one of the things that attracted me to my, my, my current company, 
which is Servier, where I've been very happy for almost a year now, um, is when I met the CEO, he said, oh, Central, no, no, we're not going to use that word. This is what we're going to use. I'm like, what? I'd never heard of that before. And, and I said, to him, what, what, is it, what does it even mean, patient in? And he turned around and he took his laptop and he says, you see this? And he says, that's what I want. I want it to be a label. I want it to be something that when you buy a laptop, you don't have to understand how it works inside. But when you see that Intel inside, you know it's a good one. So it's some kind of like a quality label. And, and it's true. It's true. Those of us old enough to know, know that at one stage, made in Japan, meant the most advanced electronics. And then made in Germany meant a really good car. Made in China now means, well, there's probably many of these. And made in Bangladesh on our clothes, not something we like. Made in Italy, ooh, premium price, right? So labels mean something. He says, that's why I want, I want it to be simple. I said, fine, fine, I get the label part, but what does it mean for you? Because I was trying to decide whether I want to work with him. I said, very simple. It's working with patients for patients. And I was flabbergasted because I had never seen such a clear definition. So I immediately went next weekend to my mom and asked her, does it mean anything to you if I say I want to work not just for you but with you? So yeah. So I asked some of her friends and all these 80-year-olds could perfectly picture what it meant to work with and they could also say that their doctors were not working with them. But they were working for them and their family that came to visit them every month or at Christmas definitely cared for them but wasn't there with them. Then I went to see some very young people. My sister got two kids that are just under, under 10. At that time, we were under 10. And they got it too. And so I thought, ooh, this is interesting. And for me, it was the first time that I, I was able to see a language capturing this whole concept of which we're talking in, in, in plain language. And so, yeah, I thought that's something I want to be part of. It's very similar, of course, to what you've seen on, on stage earlier. The quality label of PFMD, which is almost like the clothing label saying it's made with patients. Because obviously the four is quite a given and, and all companies have always worked for patients as have all doctors. And I have to admit I'm a doctor by training. I really did medicine to help patients. And so do nurses and pharmacists and all of that. But it's amazing how we forget the with part until we are patients ourselves. Anyway, somebody said, uh, the gentleman from Holland, big applause, uh, never stop talking about the why. I could not agree more. And I think that is the number one thing we have to go when we do out there. Because this room is a hyper-selected audience. This is the choir singing to the choir. But a lot of people out there, they don't get the why yet. And so, yes, we should spend at least a third of our time constantly saying why. And why is not just because it's the right thing to do emotionally, but it's also because there's better outcomes for all partners, better health and better business. And it's okay to mention both of those in one breath. I'm listing here two of two talks that you should look up on the internet. Leaving it on long enough, you're right. They're very simple names. Come on. Dan Pink and Simon Sinek. I mean, I couldn't find anybody with a shorter name. But anyway, 
Dan Pink was an advisor to the Obama administration before he got elected. And Simon Sinek has been thaw, told to be the, the, the greatest thinker alive about employees, employee engagement. He also, if you have children, look at his talk about millennials. It's, it's a talk that actually blocked the internet because it got 250 million views in a very short time. He also has a very good one about do you love your wife? Anyway, so yes, you should always talk about the why, and they explain from two different angles why you can never, ever stop talking about the why, and so I, I wanted to start with the why. Now, but why is about intent. It's the four. Remember, it's work, patient, in means working with patients for patients, and four is my intent. Now, history is littered with examples where with the best intent we've inflicted a lot of harm. A good friend of mine recently gave me a book, it's called Sapiens, of Homo sapiens. If you haven't heard of it, oof, I'm halfway through it, so I can't really give a final, but it's really, really interesting. And so history, again, is full with good intent, badly acted. And a lot of this was done to other people or to other genders throughout history. Now, why is intent a trap? Because, first of all, it's impossible to know. Even if you're married with somebody or live with them for 35 years, as, as my wife and I, we still don't know each other's intent. For God's sakes, we don't even know what moves ourselves all the time. How can we know about others? And missing out on intent is the biggest cause for fights. Because it all depends on your position. One of my mentors once said, intent is, depends on which car you're, at, uh, you're in. And I'm like, what do you mean which car I'm in? He said, yeah. If you're stopping, if somebody in front of you stops to turn across the lane in the other direction, that means in the UK to the right, everywhere else to the left, um, and just waits, after three minutes, you're like, what an incompetent driver. Get on with it, right? You're in, the intent is to block me. But if you're that car and somebody behind you honks horn, you say, hey, can't you see I'm being prudent? And careful? So it's the same behavior, but it depends where it is. And if you think about the last fight you had with a loved one, child, parent, partner, very much is, but you, this. And that usually means that I'm telling you what your intent was, which is the number one mistake to make. And it's a great formula for fights. But also, and that's very important, intent does not predict the outcome. I intend to lose weight for the last 15 years. And a lot of companies intend to do progress. The shares I have intend to grow. Right? So intent doesn't automatically mean outcome. And in the end, as patients, as individuals, as persons, we want outcomes. So then what's the, the, the connection between outcomes and intent is culture. It's what you actually do. And that's why it was great to see all these examples. And I want to focus a little bit on, on the culture part. Because what's culture? Culture is three things. It's what we think. Actually, it's more important. It's what we believe. Because what we believe drives our thinking. It's deep psychology. And then what belief drives our thinking. Our thinking drives what we do and what we say. Because saying and doing are two different expressions. Which is why the psychiatrists always look at behavior and then ask you what you think. Because nobody can look in our black box, including ourselves. And the results of what you think, what you say, and what you do are two. Oh, what happened here? Oh, I've got a build. Very sexy. Good. Two things. 
It's what we transmit to others. And when people say, oh, this company's got a strong culture, one of the ways you measure culture is what you move to the next generation. And if you go into anthropology, that's very important. And so the second thing is what you leave behind. Because even after you've failed, when you fail to transmit culture, uh, because you're the Roman Empire or whatever, what you actually build still remains. So what you say goes away, but what you do can stay. And that's quite important. And so this is culture. Now, one of the important things to know is culture is never, ever constant. Culture changes. And today, we are going through a culture change. And culture change is irreversible because it always happens with new people. Just think about many of our parents were probably hippies. And their parents, the women couldn't vote. And the ones before had never been more than 15 miles away from their church. So things evolve, but we're still the same as well. So that means that, and this is why it was so great to see the examples, what we need to work on is the visible part. We, it's, it's, we need to talk about the why, which is the beliefs. Yes, that's true. But as our colleague from Pfizer said, it's also about leadership. And leadership is going from the vision also to the action. And that means you have to work on the visible part, which is what people say and what people do. And I would invite all of you to have one of your family members visit your organization's website. It's a very refreshing way to see what you're saying to the world. So, next. Right. This brings me to the second part of the title in, in, in the talk, which is employee in. And what it really means is exactly as, as the patient in. Because, so, I was doing these interviews and I was very, very much touched and taken by the vision of making survey patient in and being an active part of that. But then my question was, do I want to be in the game? So am I in? And I thought, what kind of boss do I really want to work for? It's a good question if you have the luxury to ask it. And I came to five things, and I've shared this only once before, so chances are you've never seen this. First thing is I want a boss to listen. And listen means being available, Listen means looking at me when I speak, which, by the way, I hardly ever do myself. Um, giving me feedback, verbal and nonverbal, and really showing that if you listened. And the second thing is I don't want my boss to reduce me to my job description. Right? Now, interestingly enough, as I had written those down, I realized these were complaints number one and number two of patients. Number one, my doctor has no time for me doesn't listen. And number two, my doctor sees me as a prostate on legs or just as his or her specialty. So we have doctors have been very good at reducing the human being beyond the person all the way to just a symptom, a diagnosis. And we will talk to each other like that. Say, hey, I saw your, I saw your breast cancer patient yesterday. Or worse, I saw your breast cancer yesterday. Right? So that, that, for me, was striking. And then I went on with my list. I said, what's the third one? Well, I want my boss to respect my values. Maybe I do like Brexit and Trump. Maybe I have three wives. And love it. We should be able to work together, even if we have some different values, as long as we have the common ones that we can work on. And this is always a taboo. Sometimes in industry I hear, but we can't work with patients because we have such different objectives. That's okay. That's okay. But some of it will be common. And what's more importantly is 
values will be common. And I'll come to the values. So that was number three. And this comes straight to the patient world. As I was accompanying some patients in the last half year of their life, many, most of them died with cancer, um, they're like, oh, this progression-free survival, this overall survival, it really doesn't mean anything to me. And I know that's what you're going for, but I just want to be there to see my cousin's wedding. That's the last time I'll be seeing the family. I just want to be there without pain. That's my value. And so the values between the medical profession and the patients are still widely apart. Last, and a fourth one, nothing about me, nothing without, no, nothing about me without me. If my boss announces me tomorrow a great job in Uzbekistan, general manager of Uzbekistan, I'll probably resign because it wasn't discussed with me. Uh, we, we don't want decisions to be taken about ourselves without being heard. And last but not least, very important, loyalty. I will mess up. I'm a human being. I will say and do stupid things. And I'm very happy for my boss to beat me up behind closed doors. But in public, he has to have my back. And the second thing is it's a long-term thing. The number one reason why patients do not tell their doctor they're not taking the drug, is they know that in spite of everything that's said and written, their doctor will consider them a bad patient if they say so, and then give them less of the time, reduce them more, and all of that. The number one disappointment with people in hospice, and I spent quite a lot of time in hospice in the last two years, there's two, two regrets. One is the medical profession walking out when they ran out of drugs. There's no loyalty there. And secondly, is unresolved family conflicts. Anyway, I was looking at these five and I realized that actually what I wanted as an employee from my boss was exactly the same thing I had learned over the years the patients wanted from the doctor. And then I realized these are the basis for three things. These are the basis for trusts that will give me the opportunities to create outcomes I want. And so I thought, oh, that's a good interesting analogy between employee and and that's what makes a preferred partner because, yes, I want to work with that man. I want to work with that company. And then I realized, oh, my goodness, if I look back to my teachers at university and before, which were the three ones I liked and why did I like them? Well, I loved my English teacher because he was always there, even if the topic was not English. He was always there and listened to me, and he never saw me just as my score on the English paper, right? And he understood that I had values that were vastly different from his, so, and then I realized that a lot of things we want, how do we, how do we like our partner? It's based on these same things. And in fact, it is managers to, pe to people who report to them and people who report to their managers. So that's why I see this huge, huge parallel between being patient-in or patient-centric, if that's still the word you like, and employee-centric. Because, and you need it, because it's that DNA match that will need you to do that that work together. So what I would say, this is my last slide, I found this more, I thought it was very funny, uh, because very British, um, but also because what I've really described to you is nothing else than something that all of you knew already, which is the golden rule. And I know that the golden rule in business is that he who has the gold makes the rules, but that's not the rule I'm talking about. I'm talking about the golden rule that says, do to others, like you want to be done to you. And that's for me, it's very simple. And that's why 
It's in your daily little circle of the two, three people you work with, your boss and all of that, that you start making the difference. That's it. The 2020 conference takes place January 27th and 28th in London. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org. Thanks, everyone.